Welcome to Dext Academy. Hello, I'm Eric Tung, and this is the Dext Academy podcast, bringing accountants and bookkeepers the information they need to take their firms to the Dext level, which to us means becoming a productive, profitable, and powerful firm that is able to meet the full needs of its clients. I joined Dext from Scotiabank, where I drove the bank's digital transformation efforts along with overseeing strategic initiatives for the bank's retail and small business clients. I've also spent time at McKinsey & Company, a management consulting and advisory firm, and at eBay, where I helped thousands of U.S. and Canadian small businesses get online. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Ron Baker. Ron started his CPA career in 1984 with KPMG's Private Business Advisory Services in San Francisco. Today, he is the founder of the Verisage Institute, the leading think tank dedicated to educating professionals internationally. As a frequent speaker, writer, and educator, his work takes him around the world. He has been an instructor with the California CPA Education Foundation since 1995 and has authored over 20 courses for them. I'm delighted to have Ron join me today for the Dext Academy podcast. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Eric. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Why don't we start off if you could just tell us a bit more about your background and how you got into the accounting industry? Oh, wow. Nothing bores me more than my bio. Um, I knew I wanted to be a CPA when I was 15 years old. I had an incredible high school accounting teacher. It was a two-year program. I started doing taxes because he taught uh, half a year on taxes. And I started doing taxes for my friends at school and just any student that came into the accounting uh, class during lunch. They'd bring in their W-2s and we'd pump out, I'd pump out their tax return. Uh, started doing my dad's books. He was a barber. Uh, uh, then I started doing other people's books. Um, and then I started defending people in IRS audits at the age of 17, which was interesting. Didn't even know if that was legal, but, uh, had to sign power of attorney. They let me do it. Then I, uh, that's how I put myself through college. Basically I had my own accounting practice, did a lot of small business books. And then I joined, uh, KPMG or Pete Mark as it was back then, 1984, in uh, San Francisco. I worked there for two and a half years and then I left there and I started my own firm. And um, that's kind of how I did it. That's great. And what about the accounting teacher or your experience made you love the profession? Uh, I just thought accounting was the language of business. I thought if you understood accounting, you kind of had a grasp on how the world worked. And it, it certainly did teach you that at a, at a young age. I, I really thought this was a great prism to look at everything. I could help businesses grow. I could help them be more profitable, all of that. Um, my accounting teacher was my mentor. He was really good about bringing CPAs into the class and ex, you know explaining how their career trajectories, whatever it was. And so I was exposed to a lot of CPAs at a very young age, and they kind of helped me, showed me the ropes, how to to prep for the exam, what colleges to consider, all of those types of things. Um, and so I just thought it was the right career to go into for me at the time. And throughout your career, what have been some of the biggest takeaways from your various roles that you've had? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, obviously, getting the CPA is a big milestone. But then you start to question some of the orthodoxy in your profession and you start to question some of the practices that have been around a lot longer than their shelf life and their usefulness date. And I started to become more and more of a contrarian and not, 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 just, not just to be contrary or be disagreeable, but because I really looked around and, and looked at the other industries or other professions and said, you know, there's a better way to do things. And um, that pivot has been um, substantial in my career. And also the pivot more from an accounting mindset to an economist mindset. Those mindsets are completely different and um, they have different views of the world. And studying economics, which I... I minored in. So if I wasn't an, uh, an accountant, I would have been an economist. Um, but more and more economics for me is overshadowed accounting and, and help me explain how the world really works better. And one of the big trends that's happening right now in accounting is this idea of advisory. 
how do you see advisory in terms of where it fits in um, between this world of accounting and economics? Yeah, it's um, it's a trend, but it's been a trend for 35 years. <laughs> There's nothing new about this. Um, it's one of the things that's kind of frustrating. Everybody who you know is younger thinks that history uh, started the day they were born. Um, the profession has started uh, talking about this trend ever since I entered it in 1984. Uh, so it's nothing new. Um, we haven't done a very good job. If you look at, uh, Eric, you, you mentioned you used to work at McKinsey. McKinsey was started by Marvin Bauer. He was an accountant, right? You got it. That's right. <laughs> uh, McKinsey has been eating the accounting profession's lunch in Bain and Company and Boston Consulting Group and all the others. They've been eating our lunch for decades. Um, but I, I totally agree that CPAs need to move into advisory. We are very well positioned in terms of the relationship with the customer to help them um, with more than just reporting the history of their business. Um, you know, accountants can be more than historians with bad memories. We can actually help our customers plot strategies and pursue opportunities and grow their business, grow the value of their business, help them retire sooner, help them achieve their dreams by you know, buying a second home or getting the kid in college or indeed planning their legacy. Uh, advisory is a critical role, but I have to say, um, we've been trying to do this for a long time. Many firms are not successful at it because I think what happens, Eric, in the long run is compliance work pushes out advisory work. There's only so much time. Technology has been great. Technology has been wonderful in helping us do more work in less time. But you know, we, what we've done with that extra capacity, rather than moving into advisory, all we've done with that extra capacity, it seems to me, is gone and get more compliance work. <laughs> so I think there's a tension there. And what's holding people back to do more advisory and sticking with compliance? That's a really, really good question. And I, something I've given a lot of thought to. I think one of the things is when you're a professional, doctor, lawyer, CPA, accountant, you view yourself as an expert. It's part of your self-identity. Your customers come to you and they ask you questions and we feel we need to have the answers, period. We have to have the answers. In fact, I used to judge myself by my knowledge. How, you know, could I answer? And if I didn't have the answer off the top of my head, boy, I'd go sit in the library and research it in those days until I had it. Of course, now you can Google it. But the point is that we believe we're paid for answers. But, and again, I'm going to lean on your experience from McKinsey. McKinsey's not paid for answers. They're paid for questions. McKinsey asks better questions. Um, usually it's the customer that has the answer. I mean, after all, it's their business. They've been running it perhaps for generations. But what an outsider can do is ask questions that maybe the participants can't see. You know, it's hard to see the label when you're inside the can. And I think that's what an outside consultant can bring to the table is a different perspective and better questions. And we're not comfortable with questions because we think as experts, it shows our ignorance. And I think that's one of the main barriers to uh, CPAs becoming or accountants becoming more advisory. I think you would love your opinion on, I, I, I would love your opinion on that as ex McKinseyite. For sure. I think you are spot on in that, um, for a lot of us who start off in the consulting industry, we have the same ethos where we are paid to come up with the answer. And we are learned very, you know, or we're taught very quickly that it's much more about asking questions and actually co-developing the answer with our clients. Because ultimately, it's that mix of the outside perspective that we bring, the analytical rigor, all of the things that an accountant can provide, um, mixing that with you know, client conversations, understanding their situation, um, and really coming up with a actionable, relevant answer for them. Um, and in, in some ways, there's a lot of cases where oftentimes we get critiqued for um, not providing a relevant answer because we come in from the outside. And so while mm. we may have a technically correct answer, it's actually not the most beneficial for our clients, whether that's on strategy or whether that's on marketing, whatever the problem may be. Um, so you're completely spot on. Mm, excellent. Well, thanks for confirming that. <laughs> yeah, no. 
If you ever want, if you ever want to become an advisor, we can uh, we can talk to some folks at McKinsey for you. If you want to <laughs> add on more to your portfolio, excellent. And how would you say the industry has evolved over time? Wow, in some ways, it's I mean, change is constant, and it's it's changed a lot. And in other ways, I don't believe it's changed much at all. Uh, I remember walking into a large top 100 accounting firm a few years ago, spending some time with various levels, managers, partners, staff people, team members, and talking about the firm, its economics, its business model, all of those things. And when I met with the managing partner at the end of the day, I said, you know, it's 2018. I said, I walked into Pete Mark in 1984. So that's what, uh, 34 <laughs> years later or whatever. Um, I said, in 34 years, our business model hasn't changed. Your people are talking about the same things I was taught in 1984. You sell your time, you track your time, you do your timesheet, blah, blah, blah. We talk about, still talk about realization, utilization, hourly rates, all of this stuff. I said, it's 34 years later. It's 34 years later. And I said, it reminds me of being back in 1984. The only thing that's different is you guys, some of you stand up at your desks and you all have two or three monitors. Besides that, your business model is stuck in time. And how do you think the industry needs to evolve? Well, I think it needs to get rid of its business model of we sell time uh, because that's what, uh, that's what I was taught. That's what we've been teaching accountants since probably the 60s late 60s, maybe 70s, uh, when the desk, when the, when the computer hit the desktop, uh, hourly billing in the accounting profession really became predominant. Uh, it started in the legal profession much sooner in 1919, along with the timesheet. Um, but <laughs> that business model is dead and it, it's already dead. And the people that are still using it just don't realize it's dead. The world has moved on to, um, what do you want to call it? Value pricing or fixed pricing, or there's a million different labels for it. But this idea that your value can be measured in units of time is archaic. It, it, it's like plunging a ruler into the oven to determine its temperature. It's simply the wrong measuring stick, especially for knowledge workers who can come up with a million dollar idea in the shower, driving in the car, walking their dog, you know, what do I put on their timesheet? So it's just, it's just an archaic business model. And yet we seem to be wedded to it for some reason that I really have not been able to figure out since I've been talking about this. So let's chat more about value-based pricing. It's a concept that you've really pioneered and, um, you know, done a lot of research and, and obviously are considered the, the world expert on this topic. How would you define it? And how have you seen pricing evolve over the last decade? Well, value pricing, um, value is where it all starts. And value is in the eye of the beholder, so it's in the eye of the customer. And value is completely subjective. Um, value is a very interesting concept. And again, this is not something you're taught in an accounting class. Uh, you're taught this in economics, but you're not taught this in accounting. This is one of the disservices, I think, that the accounting profession has done to the world. Um Value is pricing is basically how a buyer and seller divide up value, right? If, if I want to sell my house to you, Eric, I probably have a very high opinion of it and will quote you a very high price. You might have a very uh, different opinion, much lower opinion. We disagree on the value, but that doesn't mean we can't come to an agreeable price. And really pricing is about how people divide up value and the only way a transaction can take place is when the buyer and seller disagree about value. If we agreed about value, there'd be no point in the transaction to the to trading with one another. We, that'd be like swapping $5 bills with one another. Um, the whole point is that value is subjective, and that's what makes, makes trade beneficial and win-win. And it all starts with value, and yet we were taught with hourly billing and even cost plus pricing – that no, no, you have to add up your costs. You have to tack on a desired profit level and that gives you a price. But that has nothing to do with customer value. So value pricing starts by looking at the customer, looking at the value that you're creating and then working backwards from that. 
because value is in the mind and the heart and the soul of the customer. And then you have to take that back into your organization and figure out, can we do this work at a price that is commensurate with that value and that we can still make an acceptable profit on? And all of those decisions have to be made before you do the work. It does no good to track your time and all your costs. At the end of the day, if the customer doesn't like your price, you're going to have an unhappy customer. And so value pricing starts with the customer. And how does an accountant or a bookkeeper, an accounting professional, determine the value they're bringing to their customers? Yeah, this is a really, this is another one of those questions that really get to the heart of this uh, because accountants, we're objective people. We like our spreadsheets. We like numbers. We especially love numbers that can be carried to two decimal places um, because it gives us this false precision of accuracy. And the problem with, with value is it's subjective. And if something's subjective, there's no way to measure it right? It's, it's more spiritual in nature. And what I mean by that, if something's spiritual, it can't be measured. If something's physical, I can measure it. I can take a violin into a lab and measure its height, its weight, its length. But when Joshua Bell picks up that violin, starts playing it, and that violin makes me weep or cry or march off to war, <laughs> that's spiritual. How do you measure that? And value is subjective. And therefore, there is no formula for it. And boy, we accountants, we have problems with that. That's why we love the billable hour. It's a formula. Now, it's a wrong formula, but it's a formula. And people say, well, it's better than nothing. Well, <laughs> the problem with it is it's precisely wrong. And I think sometimes our profession rather be a precisely wrong rather than approximately right. I'd rather be approximately right. And that's kind of the attitude you have to take when you're talking about pricing and value, because you'll never know for sure if the value is higher. Now, one leading indicator is the customer comes back, they express satisfaction with your work, they love you, they refer other people. Those are all signs that uh, you're, you're, you know, you're adding more value than, than they're paying you, which is the way it should be. There should be a profit on both sides, um, but there's no formula to get there. It's an iterative process. Um, and that's why I think it, it is troubling to accountants because it's not objective enough. And how did you get over that hump? So you were obviously trained in the school of accounting. You are cut from this cloth of accounting. You've done it. You were successful. How did you come over the hump and say, I'm going to move away from billable hours or cost plus and actually look at the value I'm bringing to my clients and charge for it? Yeah. Another great question. It was really hard because I was also trained in cost accounting. I took a ton of cost accounting and did cost accounting projects when I worked at the big eight. And, uh, I thought that was another great way to view the world because you could really help your customers with pricing and profit margins and all of that. Um, so I struggled with this when I, when I first started out, but the way I overcame the billable hour uh, and, and the, and started the move to value pricing was I learned as soon as I started my own firm, because when I worked at the big eight, I wasn't responsible for pricing or billing the engagements. I didn't have those conversations with the customer. Um, but when I had my own firm, I, I sure did. And I learned really, really fast that the billable hour was a crappy customer experience. I mean, let's just be honest. It's a crappy customer experience. It'd be like taking your car to the mechanic. Something's wrong with it. They don't tell you what it is. They don't call you and tell you what it is after they diagnose it, look under the hood. Uh, they just fix it. And it's kind of like you handing them a blank check. Well, that whole day, I promise you're going to be paranoid about what that bill's going to be. And I think that's how a lot of people feel uh, about their accounting firm when they're, when they're being billed by the hour. That's a lousy customer experience. And in 1989, when I started this in my firm, uh, there were no books on it. There were no consultants. There was no internet. There was no Amazon that you could search books. There was nobody on the circuit talking about it. And now there's you know, hundreds of pricing consultants out there. Um, but nobody was talking about it. We just thought, me and my partner thought, this was the right thing to do for the customer. At the time, I was studying leading service organizations, Disney, Lexus, Nordstrom, Neiman Marcus, L.L. Bean, Gore-Tec, you know, all of these companies that I held in esteem because I really admired their service ethic, the way they took care of the customer, nurtured them, and had incredible customer loyalty. And I wanted to emulate that. 
I wasn't so much into the marketing and the economics of the pricing like like I evolved into. It was because I was trying to create a better customer experience. And when we well, when we rolled this out to our customers, they absolutely loved it. And since we were no longer pricing by time, we no longer had a track time. So our team members loved the fact that we got rid of the timesheets very soon after we did this. It allowed us to uh, shed some low-value customers. It allowed us to double, triple, quadruple our pricing, not only with new customers, but also with existing customers, because we were having more in-depth conversations with them about how we could help them. And so uh, when, when, when you hear some of the objections to value pricing, people are always fearful about what their customers are going to say to this or how their customer is going to react to it. The fact of the matter is it's not the customer that's the problem. It's the professionals. <laughs> the customers never asked for the billable hour. In fact, the customers hate billable hours. I mean, you don't buy anything else in your life under the billable hour. I won't hire a plumber. I won't hire anybody who wants to charge me by the hour. They have to give me a fixed price. And I think that's how most of us view it. So it's a better customer experience. And at the end of the day, that's why I'm an advocate for value pricing, because it's a way to create more value for the customer and create a better experience. And tell me a bit more about this focus on customer experience. It's not something we hear about or talk about much in the accounting profession. Why do you think it's important? It's important because I think you compete against any organization that has the potential of raising customer expectations. So when a family of four takes a trip to Disney World and spends a week there, probably spends, drops several thousand dollars, and they experience that incredible pixie magic or whatever, pixie dust, um, great customer service, they come back home, their, toler- their toleration level for bad service from their dry cleaner, their favorite restaurant, their hairdresser, their grocery store, uh, it becomes much, le- much less. And uh, it, it's, about, it's about the bar's been raised. And if you don't believe that, tell me about your experience on Amazon. I mean, one click and it's there sometimes the same day or the next day. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal. Well, guess what? That's what your customers are comparing your firm's experience to. So when they go onto your website, your apps, your portals, you know, just how they interact with you, whether it's mobile, digital, at home, laptop, whatever, that's what they're comparing you to. Amazon. Amazon's raised the bar, just like FedEx raised the bar. You know, FedEx made me more upset as a as a traveler because the airline would lose the luggage. And I'd say, how can you people lose the luggage? FedEx takes stuff around the world and gets it there on time and do, no problems. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the same plane supposedly as my luggage, but sometimes I'm not. And, and it just, you know, FedEx raised the bar for the airlines and their luggage issues. Um, and I think the same is happening with us. And it's not just other, you're not just being compared to other accounting firms. You're being compared to Amazon and Disney and Nordstrom and Lexus. And I'll tell you, that's a darn high bar. And those bars are not static. They're continuously rising from those organizations. And we have to up our game. And quite frankly, our level of service in the accounting profession is pretty dismal. If you look at like net promoter scores. Tell me a bit more about um, what great customer service looks like in the accounting space. Great customer service is having the capacity to care for your customers and nurture the relationship. Imagine having a dental, um, a dentist and having a toothache and calling your dentist in the middle of the day and say, oh, geez, doc, I hope you can fit me in. This tooth is killing me. And he says, oh, well, I can see in a couple of weeks. It's busy season here. You know, <laughs> you would change. No, a professional firm should always have capacity to nurture those relationships. We are a relationship business. And I think we need to put the relationship at the center of the business model. And when you look at how we, when you look at our business model and you can always tell a business model by what you charge for, how, how does it monetize uh, the customer? 
Well, right now we're monetizing based on transactions. Oh, we do your books. Oh, you have so many accounts. Oh, you have so many employees. Oh, we, you have used so many apps, blah, blah, blah. None of that matters. What matters is that relationship. And we should be monetizing that relationship, not the transactions that go into it. So good customer service is about having in-depth conversations and nurturing relationships. Because if you think about a relationship, there's only two things that are happening with a relationship. They're either getting stronger or they're getting weaker or and deteriorating. And we can't, we can't take that type of attitude. And I, what I find in a lot of accounting firms is we have too many customers and therefore we don't have enough capacity to, to really go deep and wide with the customers that we do have. And I think that's uh, a big shortcoming, but it's also a big opportunity. And what role do you think technology plays in terms of improving the customer experience within the accounting industry? Well, technology obviously is, is, is playing critical role and it will continue to play a critical role as it evolves and changes and we get things like AI, machine learning, blockchain, all of these things. I'm, I'm not anti-technology, um, but technology is a tool. <laughs> And if we think the new shiny app is going to solve all our problems or make our systems and processes better, this is delusional. Uh, what matters is relationships. Now, sure, technology can facilitate those relationships and it can uh, certainly complement them, but it's no substitute for that belly button to belly button contact and that deep, nurturing, caring, compassionate attitude that we should have in helping our customers solve problems and, and indeed pursue opportunities. So I don't look at, um, you know, I, I, I think technology at the end of the day is kind of like a table stake. It needs to be there, but it's, it certainly doesn't ensure that you're going to win the game. It's like having bathrooms. It's kind of a given. I like that analogy. Um, and it's definitely something that we at Dex believe as well that we very much want to, um, empower accountants and bookkeepers and accounting professionals so they can have those conversations. So we speed up the data process or we can leverage AI to extract information and streamline things ultimately to exactly what you said, which is give back time for people to give great high quality service and advice to their clients. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that, Eric, because I, I felt bad. I, I know I'm on the Dex podcast. And, no, no. Uh, but, but here, I'll just say this. The technology companies have been instrumental in helping us push out the value pricing message. And if it wasn't for companies like Dex, um, you know, I don't think the diffusion of these ideas would have happened as fast. Because uh, when I started this in 1990 or so, um, you know, didn't have a lot of support from any technology companies. Uh, they all did time and billing programs. They, they looked at me as, you know, I was Henry Ford and they were tinkering around with, you know, black shoeing horses and their, and their carriage building. But it, it's been the technology companies that have been at the forefront of helping the profession learn uh, about value pricing. And I'm really encouraged and thankful for that. And tell me a little bit more in terms of what you think the biggest mis misconceptions are around value pricing? Oh boy, there's a lot of them. Um, I, I, when people say value billing, oh yeah, we do value billing. I know right away they don't know what they're talking about because billing takes place in arrears and pricing takes up front. It takes place up front before the work has even begun. Um, so that's one misconception. The other misconception is, well, a fixed price is, is a value price. Not necessarily. Usually a fixed price is an estimate in advance, like doing your timesheet in advance of how many hours something is going to take. Perhaps you add a fudge factor, five, 10, 20%, and then you fix that price. That's not value pricing because it has nothing to do with the value that you're creating for the customer. Um, those are probably the two big misconceptions. Another big one is, well, value pricing means I have to take a percentage of the savings or the tax savings, I, you know, or the business sale or whatever it is I'm, I'm working with the customer on. And that's absolutely false. That's a contingency price. Now, sure, that's one arrow in the quiver of value pricing, but it's not the main one, uh, at least in not in our profession as much. And so there are misconceptions out there. And 
I think part of it's just the vocabulary that we use sometimes. Um, I'm kind of tried and true with value pricing because it's got 150 year literature in, in the economics profession. And I don't feel like I can, you know, change the name of that literature just to suit my purposes. So I, I tend to stick with value pricing when I'm doing education, but when we're communicating it to customers, when I communicated this to my customers in my practice, I didn't use the term value pricing. I used the term fixed price agreement. And the logic was, well, it's like a fixed rate mortgage. You know, a fixed rate mortgage conveys more value than a variable rate mortgage. And therefore, customers are willing to pay a premium for a fixed rate mortgage. And so I started using the term fixed price agreement. And the customers really liked that because it conveyed certainty and predictability in their pricing. So maybe you can provide kind of some guideposts around, you know, value-based pricing in the sense of how do folks really know that they are actually executing value-based pricing? When you're pricing the customer and not the services. In other words, I think we're too attached to scope of work. Um, you know, well, I, I need to do this. I, I need to, you know, do so many bank recs, so many payrolls. Uh, all, you know, how many transactions do, do, do you have? What's your monthly expenses and things like that or revenue? You know, we, we, we've devised all these shortcuts kind of to get to this and, and they're just a way of trying to impose a formula that we can feel good about, just like we feel good about the hourly rate and the number of hours. Um, but what it really requires is a value conversation with the customer. We have to start out by trying to figure out what the ends are for the customer. What is the customer really buying? So I'll give you an example. Uh, earlier today, my landscaper was out here. Now, my landscaper is really unique because when he proposed to me, he didn't give me, he didn't give me an hourly rate. He said, we'll come out here with a crew and we're 40 bucks an hour. He didn't even give me a fixed price and say, I'll come out and I'll do the edging and the mowing and you know, trimming the trees and hedges and all of that kind of stuff. He said, I'm going to give you three options. He said, the first one is we'll do basic maintenance, which is all those things. And he said, the second option is we'll bring your, your, uh, your landscaping up to neighborhood standards. You can tell I've gotten some HOA announcements or some uh, you know letters. Um, and the third option was, we'll give you the best curbside appeal in the neighborhood. Now, none of that, Eric, has to do with what they're doing for me. I don't care about the trimming and the edging and the tree. You know, that's all their stuff. They have to worry about that. They're technical. I care about the outcome. I'm paying them for best curbside appeal because if I want to sell in a year or two, that's what I want. And by focusing on what it is the customer wants, like you go to an arc, uh, a contractor and say, build my dream house. They, what's that mean? I mean, the contractor has one opinion of a dream house, but you might have another. The first question is, well, where are your blueprints? Well, we don't spend enough time coming up with those blueprints with our customers. We kind of dive into the work. We just dive in, start drywall hanging and building the frame and foundation and everything. But you got to figure out what is it you're trying to achieve? Maybe there's multiple ways to do it. What's that end game? Uh, and so we start with scope of value and it's ultimately scope of value that determines scope of work. And that's what really needs to happen with value pricing is you need to take the time to have value conversation with every single customer and not just once every, you know, two years, you have to do this sometimes multiple times a year. Because our customers are not photographs, they're videos. You know, they're not static. They, their expectations and their businesses change. Uh, COVID's really taught this well over the past 19 months or whatever. Uh, so it, it's having that value conversation that really differentiates a firm that value prices from one that doesn't. And tell me a bit more about um, how you would define a value conversation. What does having a value conversation look like or sound like? It's all about asking questions and listening. It's about the customer talking 80% of the time and you talking maybe 20% of the time. And it's all questions designed around, tell me how you define the success of the relationship with your accountant. What does that mean to you? A successful relationship with your accountant? Um, what's your expectation on being able to meet with us or getting email replies from us or, 
uh, how would you like to communicate with us? Is that by text? Is that by phone? Is that by Zoom? You know, all of these different things are just trying to figure out what are the ex- what are your expectations? Because if you don't know the customer's expectations, you don't know how they're grading you, right? I, it'd be like going into a class and not knowing how the professor is going to grade you, how much is tests and how much is attendance and participation in class. You're kind of flying blind. So I always want to try and figure out what are the customer's expectations? How do they define a successful relationship? And what are they trying to achieve? Um, they may come in and have one or two things in mind that they're, they're trying to accomplish. It may be much deeper than that. I mean, they're, after all, they're the customer, we're the professional. So it's kind of like the doctor-patient relationship. Yes, the patient understands the symptoms they feel, but the doctor needs to spend time diagnosing because the doctor understands the disease that creates those symptoms and they're going to treat the disease, not the symptoms. And it's the same with us. We don't spend enough time in diagnosis. We don't spend enough time trying to figure out if we can even help this customer achieve, maybe they have unrealistic expectations. Well, I want to find that out before I onboard them as a customer. I want to find out what their expectations are. And I want to find, uh, you know, and take the time to do a thorough diagnosis, just like a doctor does. So I can come up with the right prescription because as the second law of medicine reads, you know, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. I like that. And how would you respond um, to those who said, who, let me say it differently. How would value pricing work in terms of bargain hunters? So there's a subset of clients that, you know, accountants and accounting professionals really feel like all they're out for is a good bargain. Um, and so they're just going to push down and negotiate on price. How does value pricing work in that situation? Oh, I think value pricing works great there because it basically you don't take those customers and some of the tenets of value pricing is establish a minimum price that you just don't go below. This is our minimum price to even onboard you as a customer, to even consider it, uh, even in, in, indeed, maybe even to have a, a, a conversation with you. Um, so we see some firms post their minimum prices on their websites. They certainly communicate it in phone calls or inquiries. Um, that's one way. The second way is just to set the tone and and to uh, have a positioning in the marketplace and a strategy that conveys the message that, you know what, we're not the cheapest firm in town. Shall we continue? In fact, I started to say that when I first made my transition. I said, you know, when I met with a new customer, we're not the cheapest firm in town because I had competitors on both sides of me where I worked. Um, and they were much cheaper than we were. Our minimum price was three times their average price. And I would tell the customer that. Uh, I'd say, you know, shall we continue this conversation because our minimum price is X and that chase away, that chased away the, the tire kickers or the people just looking for a bargain. The problem with those bargain hunters is, you know, if you can, if you capitulate to them and cut your price, well, then you don't have a loyal customer. They're like Groupon clippers, right? They're just, when they find a better deal somewhere else next year, they're gone. I don't want customers like that. And I don't want firms I work with to have customers like that. And pricing can help you just keep those away. Just like the price of a Mercedes or a Porsche keeps certain customers away because quite frankly, they can't afford it. So as we're getting um, towards the end of our time together, Ron, what are some tactical steps that you would recommend for folks who want to get started down this path? Well, attend the Dex value pricing masterclass. <laughs> uh <clears throat> Are we allowed to say that? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I've done some programs for, for you guys in the past, which have been yeah. great. And I'm going to try and put some t- concepts in here that are, that are new that haven't, that I haven't talked about before, but I guess some of the c- concepts that I think firms can use, you know, and, and adopt pretty soon, or at least test it out, like maybe on a new customer they're working on is Use the language of, you know, transformations, find out what it is the customer is trying to achieve. Like me and my landscaper, do you want the best curbside appeal? 
I promise you there's a best curbside appeal with every one of your customers. Um, what are they trying to achieve? It may be tax savings. It may be make enough to get my kid in college, make enough to retire in five years, um, plan my legacy for when I'm gone, those types of things. There's always something the customer, some desired future state that the customer is aspiring to. And this is one of the things I think we accountants shortchange ourselves on. Yes, we are great problem solvers. Nobody solves problems like we do. We can clean up messy books. We can get the IRS off your back with a phone call. We can do all sorts of problem solving. But the real value comes when we pursue opportunities. And we can help our customers pursue many opportunities. And when you transform a customer and you help them get to some desired future state, that's incredibly valuable. And that's going to command a top price because with the transformation, the customer is the product. The product is not the services you generate. It's not the monthly financials, the audit report, the tax returns, the trust document, the estate plan. None of that matters. What matters is that transformation, how you touch that customer's soul and how you help them move to a new preferred future and the customer becomes the product in the transformation. Eric, we don't use that language and we should, because if you did use that language, I think it would really differentiate you on the marketplace because that's really what we're helping our customers do is get to a new spot, get to where they want to go. And do you think in part it's because the accountants themselves don't fully appreciate the value they're bringing to their clients? Oh, yeah, I think there's an enormous link between self-respect, self-esteem, whatever you want to call it, and value pricing. In fact, in every pricing book I've ever written, uh, I have a chapter on the link between value pricing and self-esteem. When I first started teaching this, I was amazed that people would say to me, I'm not worth that much, or I can't believe you would charge that. And I thought, wow, you don't hear this in any other profession. Most other profession or industries, they're trying to figure out how to get more pricing power. And that's what I thought I was helping my colleagues do is to, to get more pricing power. It's not just about setting a higher price. It's about adding more value so you can so you can move up the price. Your, your customers are still earning a profit. In fact, they're probably earning a higher profit off the value of your services than what they're paying you. But I was amazed at the mental blockage, I believe there's great nobility in being paid what you're worth. And uh, some accountants struggle with that. I think the other thing is we are a relationship business. So when somebody says, no, I'm not going to hire you or they fire you, uh, we take that personal. And as we should, I used to get physically ill if I lost a client. But the fact of the matter is, uh, maybe you shouldn't be doing the pricing because you bring that baggage of the relationship and therefore that makes you more tenuous and, you know, people can pick up on that. You're not really certain of your value. So we tell small firms, especially if you're just a solo firm, the best pricers in the world are your spouse. Let your spouse do your pricing because your spouse has to live with the consequence of your cheap pricing. You know, you being overworked, you having too many customers, you missing your kids' soccer games, you being stressed out all the time, not sleeping well, all of those problems, you know, are kind of a symptom of underpricing. And so let somebody else do your pricing, just like authors and actors have agents. Agents, they, the reason they have agents is not so they can pay them 15% of their gross revenue, it's so they can get them a better price. Because if I'm selling you, Eric, I can be brave as a lion. But if I'm selling myself, I'm incredibly weak. I love that. It's all about the outside perspective, as we started with. The the outside perspective of value or Correct. It will both in terms of the outside perspective accountants can bring, but also to your analogy around like having a spouse or an agent help us or help account the accountants recognize the value they bring to their clients. Yeah. Like maybe you have a business coach or it could be a spouse, could be a business coach. A lot of times it's an employee. Uh, if you have a team member, sometimes it's the receptionist, especially, you know, in, in a little bit bigger firms, the receptionist knows everybody. She knows every client. She knows lots of, probably knows more about the clients than the CPA does because she you know, probably spends more time talking to them when they come in the office. Um, and sometimes they're great pricers. Team members are great pricers because 
they feel like they have to do the work and they don't want to give it away. They don't want to see the firm give it away. Um, and the nobility in being paid what you're worth, I think, makes for a better firm. It allows us to keep at the cutting edge of technology, make investments in tomorrow. You know, Peter Drucker said profit is the price we pay for tomorrow. And uh, ha- being a profitable firm, even being a super profitable firm or a windfall profitable firm, means that you can create much better tomorrows for your for your talent and for your customers. It allows you to invest in R&D and coming up with new services um, and, and even spending more time with your customers to help them at a deeper level. So I think it's, a, it's kind of a virtuous spiral that goes upwards when you, you get paid what you're worth and you're really being recognized for your value. I mean, I look at Apple Computer. They're one of the most profitable companies on the planet. Nobody's even close. And they just keep putting out fantastic products. And that's what's paid for all that is their incredible level of profitability. I love the idea of that virtuous circle. And as we've seen through COVID, this profession adds an enormous amount of value. So it's definitely time to make sure everyone's capturing that value and getting the benefits from it. Absolutely. I think that's what COVID taught us more than anything, is that the relationship is what it's all about. Because who did the customer call uh, when they had anxiety about their business being on the ropes, they called their accountant, just like we called our doctor about the health issues related to COVID. We were on the front line of COVID and it shows you the strength of our relationship. And it's sad when you, when when I saw reports of how many firms didn't have relationships with their customers, bankers (laughs) was like, in my day, we, we knew the bankers of our customers. We knew their lawyers. We knew their insurance agents, um, digital world, I realize that may be harder, but this is a relationship business and we don't work. No man, no CPA firm is an Island. You know, we have to work with other professionals that are also serving our customers. Um, and I think COVID taught us, you know what, we need to put this relationship front and center, um, because everything revolves around that, that dynamic relationship. So how do you encourage those who are reluctant to make the change? Well, the change is one customer at a time, and um, there's not a lot of reluctance to even to get somebody to try it. Now, I say, look, you know, take a take an existing customer and change them because when I in my practice, when I made this transition, I started with my existing customers, not because I had any data or evidence that that was where you started, just because well, I felt I had a relationship with these people. I could sit in a bar and talk honestly with them. In fact, my first price fixed price agreement was actually discussed. My first value conversation was actually discussed on the 19th hole, <laughs> in a bar in a golf course. And, um, but if you're not comfortable with your existing customers, try it with a new customer that comes in. Have a value conversation. Take an hour or so. Spend some time really trying to figure out what is their best curbside appeal. What are they trying to achieve? And really try and understand what it is that they're going after and how you can help them. Because that will allow you to think about the value that you're creating, the the impact that you're having. Um and just do one, just do one. Now, chances are, in all honesty, you're going to underprice it. That's okay. Give yourself permission to, to not be perfect. Uh, people say, well, what if I underprice it? I'll take a bath. Well, you know what? You're taking a bath now with the billable hour and you don't even realize it. You know, this, at least with value pricing, you're going to get better at it. You're going to learn from your mistakes. You're going to feed on your successes. The billable hour Firms keep writing down, they keep writing off, they keep getting angry phone calls about, why didn't you tell me it was so expensive? You know, and we keep doing the same thing over and over. <laughs> well, you know, there's no education in the third kick of a mule. If I make the mis- if I make a mistake once, okay, I blew it. If I make a mistake twice, uh, maybe I'm a little slow on the uptake. But if I make a mistake three or more times, <laughs> that's an ideology at that point. And that's where we are at the billable hour. Firms are making the same mistakes over and over. This will break that cycle. And you can do it at a pace that's comfortable for you. Just do it one customer at a time. Start with a couple new customers. Get some success under your belt. And then when you start to have conversations with your existing customers, you're going to find that they love this. What customer doesn't want to have certainty in price? 
It's why we pay a premium for fixed rate mortgages. It's why, you know, we, we, we love to know the price before we buy. And again, just a better experience. So just it's one customer at a time. That would be my overarching advice. Brilliant. Ron, as always, you're super um, inspiring and um, educational. I always learn speaking to you. Um, thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thank you, Eric. This has been wonderful. Great. And thank and you for hosting the master class, which is going to be a lot of fun. We can't wait. My last question for you is how can our listeners connect with you and learn more about what you and your firm is doing? Uh, you can connect with me in a couple different ways. Obviously, I'm all over social media. So I'm at Ronald Baker on Twitter. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm one of LinkedIn's influencers. So you can follow me and I've got a hundred and some odd posts up there on all things um, that relate to pricing and, and other issues about knowledge economy and, and professional firms. They can also check out my radio show that I do with Ed Kless, the soul of enterprise.com. And uh, we've been on the air over seven years now. We've done about 350 some odd shows and uh, there's a lot of shows on pricing and other areas related that relate to pricing and interviews with authors and things like that. Or you can just email me at ron at verisage.com. And that's verisage, V as in Victor, E-R-A-S-A-G-E.com. I'm always happy to talk to Dext customers or people that are interested in using Dext um, and, and happy to continue this conversation. I look at this audience, Eric, as you're all colleagues. We're all colleagues here. And I, I love to help colleagues. I, I love to help them think in new ways, behave in new ways um, that are going to make our profession thrive and that are going to add more value to the lives of our customers and create more of an impact on what this profession can do for them. I love it. Let's go do it. Excellent. Thanks for joining us for Dext Academy. Uh, for all things Dext, be sure to visit us at Dext.com. And also register for our next Academy session featuring Kelly Parks on October 14th. Thank you so much. This has been a production of the Accounting Podcast Network.